and welcome to episode 46 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Serena Dai, a senior feature editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. This conversation is all about food. Serena joined the Chronicle after years working in New York for the website Eater. She comes at food from all sides. What is delicious? Sure, that's a part of it. But also what food says about us as people, about the cities we live in, about our culture, and about our current moment in time. She gets into everything from hot takes about who has the best bagels to whether restaurant reviews are racist. She's probably best known for breaking the news of sexual misconduct allegations against celebrity chef Mario Batali while she was at Eater. You may also have seen her on David Chang's show, Ugly Delicious, on Netflix. This is a long interview. Yes, I will admit that. And I did already cut a fair number of questions. But what's left, I really think merits it. If you've ever wondered about the world of food journalism, you'll be interested in what she has to say. And if you like to eat food, you'll probably also find a lot to enjoy in this conversation. If you're keeping score at home, you'll probably note the myriad web that connects the journalists I speak to. Serena went to Northwestern University with me, but honestly, we didn't really know each other then. You'll hear some name dropping on this episode of the people we know in common, so I'll just state it clearly here in case it's confusing. She knows my friends Ryan, who's a film director in Los Angeles, and Paul Schrote, who appeared on episode 21 of the podcast. If you haven't already, I highly recommend you go back and listen to Paul's episode. He's a culture and entertainment journalist living in L.A. That episode is also longer than average, but it's wildly entertaining. Must be something about that weird friend group. You'll notice I'm expanding the podcast into more and more areas of reporting. I spoke to a sports journalist, Tim Cato, of The Athletic, for my final episode last year. Now, this year, we've had a couple of podcasters. Serena writes and edits stories about food, and soon we'll have an interview with a film critic. As I continue to expand the podcast's horizons, if there's a certain type of journalist you'd like to hear from, drop me a line and let me know. The email address is foreignpod at gmail.com. So now, without further ado, here's my interview with Serena Dai, a senior features editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. To set the scene a bit, if you can just describe where you are right now, both the physical space around you and geographically where you are, uh, mention what time it is, and tell me a little bit about what your last week of work was like. So I am in San Francisco. I am living in the Mission District. I'm currently at my desk right by the kitchen. So my last week of work, I, my job, I can work from home, which I'm lucky to do right now. My last week of work, gosh, it was actually kind of crazy. I am currently hiring right now. So my team is two people down. And so I'm, I'm quite busy. Uh, this last week was kind of funny because... The New York Times wrote an article declaring California bagels better than New York bagels, uh, <laughs> and it caused a huge hoopla. <laughs> and it was interesting because as a former New Yorker, very recent New Yorker who covered New York food for quite a while, it was funny to see. And, and, and me being here now, it was interesting. 
there's a, a huge hoopla around it. And so that kind of dominated the food cycle <laughs> over here for a week. It was interesting <laughs> because Janelle Vicker, one of our reporters, she wrote a story in the fall, like in November, about this. There's The bagel scene here has been happening for quite a while now, many, many years. But more recently, it's been uh, it's been booming. Even more and more people are opening up. I think it's partly because of the pandemic. And there you, you have these pop-ups from people who are just innovating and just need to make money and thinking, what is the thing I need to do now? So there are a lot of bagel pop-ups and, you know, they'll run like two days a week or something, super small production, but they're all kind of trying their own styles. And her story in November was these bakers are essentially done chasing the New York style of bagel. It's this holy grail of what a bagel should be. There are a lot of New York transplants here. And I think people who have eaten a bagel before and have good memories of bagels, have a very nostalgic idea of what the perfect bagel is. And these bakers were basically like, we can't really chase that anymore. Like we're never going to meet up to whatever memory you have from when you were 18 years old and the first time living in New York or something, or when you were growing up in that place around the corner. So they, they all kind of have their own style. Anyway, Tejal's story in the Times was about both Los Angeles and California and some bagel shops here. So we were just kind of responding to that. I, I don't write as much as I used to, but as someone who just moved from New York and is here, someone on our audience team was like, are you sure you don't have anything to say about bagels? I was like, okay, I'll write something about bagels. So I wrote about bagels. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your bagel hot take then? I say the word bagel, my Wisconsin accent, it's one of the few words that I actually can't, say right unless I think about it. I normally say bagel and it's bagel. Um, but uh, what was your take on bagels? Oh, I don't really have a hot take. I can't say that the California bagels are better than the New York bagels. The truth is that I'm not a bagel fanatic. Like I like a good bagel. I'm not necessarily someone who pursues them a lot. People who are not working in food all the time, I think, don't really care about these regional food fights. But people not in it all the time are obsessed with regional food fights. Like, people love them. And uh, so I understand why the Times did that headline. I mean, if I were in the same position, maybe I would have as well if it felt accurate. (laughs) So, but my take was basically that the people making the food don't really care. And and there's really no reason to... New York is the New York food scene is very different from the California one and that the New York one, I think, has certain traditions and nostalgia and things that people want to be a certain way. And there's always riffs on it and innovation on it. And people are always doing their own version. Um, But in California, for the bagel, there's not that sense of history. The bagel is such this New York working class Jewish immigrant food that is just everywhere and has morphed and transformed. And here... In San Francisco, there is, however, a really rich history of bread making and artisanal grains and a really deep connection to the farms that are around here. And this is going to sound like a cliche because everyone says it and the produce here is really great. And it is. The reality it is. And it's, I, I don't think I quite had a sense of how that impacts the way people interact with the food here until I started eating here a little bit more. And so the reality is the bagel here aren't the, the a lot of the newcomers here are again like Janelle Story said are they're not trying to be this ideal version of a New York bagel. So my take was basically they are inspired by this really great tradition in New York, but they're really trying to make it their own and they don't really care about trying to be better than New York bagel. It's kind of their own thing and you can't really try and 
say that one is better than the other if they're just coming from different places they're not even necessarily in the same genre anymore and, and that's the what i really love about food too is that you don't really want a situation where you're traveling and you're going to different cities and the food basically tastes the same the idea of going to a new city and trying the food is that it has a sense of place and it has a sense of culture and it has a sense of here's who i'm interacting with and here's what i'm eating and here's how i'm being inspired by the people around me and the food producers around me and here's what i'm going to put out as well and I love the idea that Californians do love the bagel and they're making their own versions of it and that people here are compelled by them and they are actually really delicious and they might not be exactly like what the New York bagel is, but that's never been the point, I think. So it was basically saying there's not really a reason to compete. If the bagels in California were the same as the bagels in New York, it's like, what's the point of even making them? There's no point. It's kind of better if everyone's doing their own version of it. And that's what makes being in food so beautiful and eating different kinds of food so beautiful. Right. Yeah. And there's many different ways to make it in a way that tastes good. And let me tell you, I would settle for any of those ways because it's impossible to find bagels in Brazil. And (laughs) I would love to have one. I'm a big bagel fan. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) That's the funny about uh, the bagel news cycle. (laughs) I know. One reason I really love working in food is that I have a week where I can just shoot the shit about bagels. Like I'm just thinking about bagels all week. But then another week I might be thinking about labor issues and sexual harassment and equity within the restaurant industry. And there's just such a range of topics. And so it's, it's funny. I sometimes I kind of laugh, like how serious is it for me to be talking about bagels? Like what kind of world do I live in? Where this is, this is actually just my job. This is talking about bagels, uh, but it's fun. I, I have a good time and I, I like the, that there's this versatility in the bead. Yeah, that's great. Um, So I guess to get a bit into more regionalism, I'm curious where you're from after this discussion of bagels. And uh, normally we like to tell the story of your career and start way, way back at the beginning. So uh, perfect segue. Can you tell me where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if you started to show any interest in journalism early on? Yeah, So my parents are Chinese. They came to the United States for grad school, um, part of this wave of Chinese immigrants who were, I I don't know if people know, but there's the whole Immigration Act in China where it really banned immigrants from China for a very long time. And once people started coming back in, it was for very specific reasons. And so my parents, when they were growing up, this this is going further back, but they wanted to come to the United States and one of the one of the paths to do that was to go to graduate school. So they both came to the University of Missouri in Columbia doing physics. So my parents are both physics PhDs. And so I was born there. I was born while my parents were in grad school. Shortly after they moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, which is in East Tennessee, kind of, if people know Dollywood, it's not that far from there. It's around that in the Valley of the Smoky Mountains and the suburbs there. Sure. There's a science lab, a national science lab in Oak Ridge, which is not that far from Knoxville. So they moved there. And so I spent most of my life in East Tennessee growing up there in the suburbs. As far as getting into an interest in journalism, I am not so science-minded and STEM-minded. And growing up, I was just really interested in reading books and kind of early on was really passionate about storytelling and fantasy and being transported to other worlds through words. And as I 
kind of progressed this kind of thing of what would be most practical for for what I wanted to do, which was write and tell stories and took a journalism class in high school and just really fell in love with it. I think it was the one of the first times where I was doing something where I felt like I was good at it. And I think when you're young and kind of unhappy and woe is me, you know, classic teenage angst to find out that you are good at something is a really big deal and has a huge impact. Uh, (laughs) I was in this journalism class and essentially put out this newspaper thinking of stories. And I just remember being in the cafeteria and it's like any high school cafeteria where it can be very clicky. Everyone's kind of in their own groups and having these ideas of like, who are these people and what is an excuse to expand beyond the structures and the social circles that we already have and doing interviews just with random people who I never would have talked to otherwise, unless I had this excuse of journalism in the cafeteria and just kind of went for it. And then eventually there had been this rumor that one of the vice principals at the school was maybe a little flirtatious with students in a way that was inappropriate. And, um, you know, literally teachers at the school would make jokes about it. And at the time I was like, well, is this true or not? And so I started asking around and the story never published. And I was devastated that it didn't, but now I completely understand why. But I did ultimately talk to the principal about it, like address the rumors with him. And it was just such an interesting experience. I think that's the first time I felt a sense of power to expose, power to think about, I guess, power to not accept things as the way they were and question things and, and the appropriateness of things and the the justice of things. And so even though it didn't get published, it was just this meaningful experience. And I ended up going to journalism school and kind of finding my way from there. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if it ever became a problem later on. <laughs> well, he ended up retiring early at the end of the year. I don't think anyone had oh. told him about what people said about him. And I think it really impacted him. I think he was going to retire in a couple of years anyway, but he retired early because of the questions I had asked him, which was kind of nuts. Looking back, I, I don't know. I wonder what I, how I would have coached myself through that story now. And mm-hmm. it is interesting, but it is funny after it all happened. I don't know. I heard, I heard like, well, you actually went for the wrong person. There's this other guy who actually was like a driver's ed teacher or something. Anyway, I don't know if anyone ever followed up on that. Maybe not. Huh. Yeah. So then you go to Northwestern. Was Northwestern like the one spot you wanted to go or did you just apply to journalism schools all over or? Yeah, it was the only journalism school I applied for. I think I knew I loved journalism, but I, again, was an angsty teen where I was like, I don't want to be put into a box. Like I want to leave things open (laughs) and who knows what's going to happen. And my mom actually encouraged me to apply to Northwestern and which was which was interesting because neither of my parents were huge fans of the idea of me becoming a journalist and actually even after I did get into Northwestern and go there were lots of challenging discussions with my family about like are you sure this is what you want to do <laughs> it's not exactly a, a stable industry so sympathetic to that but of course me at the time was like shut up this is me you can't get in my way so at the time when I applied I applied for a bunch of different places and mostly was just trying to get out of Knoxville get out of the suburbs and 
spread my wings, I suppose. But Northwestern just ended up being the best school I got into and happened to be for the journalism program. And I went and even in the beginning was like, I don't know, maybe I will, well, maybe I won't. I ended up minoring in gender studies, which I am still super passionate about that probably in some ways changed my worldview and life more was studying gender studies. So anyway, that was that's kind of thing. But and I probably the bigger thing was during college, aside from the classes, was this way I met Paul Schrote actually was through NU Intel. I don't know if you have any memory of it, but doing work on that and working with him and Peter Jackson and and Alyssa Karras and all these all these people who are now many of them still in journalism was kind of one of the first times where I felt like just, it was just very different because I feel like the Medill classes skewed a little bit more towards newspaper work and and you Intel was kind of gossipy it was very chatty it was more like a blog I think it took a lot of inspiration from the New York Magazine website and Gawker and that was really fun and it was it was fun to do things from a more conversational way and kind of break some rules and be hated a little bit and also be like loved to hate it and also just loved and all these various things and playing around with that that was some of the most fun I've ever had with journalism and so I just ended up deciding from there I think kind of confirming that it's still what I wanted to do it's pretty cool that you guys were able to get something up and running, get it well read, you know, do all these things. It's interesting how fast you can get an audience in college. Um, and you you must only have been a year behind me, right? You were Ryan's year. I was a year behind Ryan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So I graduated in 2009. The economy was in complete and total shambles. Um, you would have graduated in like 2011, right? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you, uh, so you had already d- done a couple internships by that point. And what what were your internships? Yeah, I had a, I did a ton of internships. I think because I was so afraid of failing that I just, I didn't, I, I did a lot of work through college because I was so terrified of not making it in this field. Um, for the first couple of years in Knoxville, I, I would, I pitched some local publications and was writing for a woman's magazine, the local woman's magazine in Knoxville. And so did that. And that was a great experience. But then I think, again, back to the the idea of like what Northwestern brought me, I think a lot of the journalism skills you, you can learn just doing the work. You know, it's not rocket science in many ways. But one of my really big first internships was at the Associated Press. And the Associated Press has this really great internship program that's very structured. It's paid well, like they pay the union minimum for entry level, which ended up being really great. And so I interned at the Chicago Bureau of the AP and had some really great mentors there. Karen Hawkins was one of my mentors there, and she's now at the Chicago Reader. And seeing her there and talking to her and building a relationship with her was super impactful. And everyone there was super nice. It was the kind of internship where... I was sent to a lot of press conferences, but I would go to an Illinois governor press conference alongside people who were, their job was to cover the governor. And that was really exciting and, and just incredibly a good experience. And one thing to know about that internship too, is that so much of journalism is knowing the language and who you know in a network. And that is inherently an inequitable, inequitable uh, system, <laughs> which must be said. And I think the AP internship started as an internship specifically to bring in people of color 
to the Associated Press because there have been criticisms that this super influential news organization was majority white and that, you know, this conversation about equity in the industry has been happening for decades. Like this is, you know, decades and we're still not fixed and, and like a little bit better. But it was really helpful. I mean, it really helped me gain confidence and skills and, and really made me feel like I could do this job. And that, that internship is no longer only open to people of just, uh, yeah, not open to anybody, basically. It's still a very competitive internship, but they still do try and prioritize young journalists of color to try and bring them into the fold. And I, that was hugely important. And that there are programs like that that are structured, I think, have a massive impact on the industry as a whole. Obviously, it was a significant experience for me. And now I am. I'm still here. I'm still in the industry. Not to say I don't think I wouldn't have been in if I hadn't been in that internship, but it definitely helps. That was kind of the big one, but that was before my senior year. And then my senior year, I did JR, which at Northwestern is this residency that you do during school. And now I'm like, so we're basically paying tuition to do an internship. It's, 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 <laughs> right. It was marked as a selling point before you went to Northwestern. And now it, I'm like, there's something suspect about this. It's a little fishy. But, <laughs> um, but it was also hugely impactful. I did mine at New York Magazine, which I'm still a fan of to this day was a fact-checking intern there and was just a completely different world from the AP. The AP was a very breaking news focused place. Like that was their bread and butter. And that was what was important to them and and, and how they, their, their entire business model, whereas New York Magazine is much more cultural and about thought leadership and about local culture and voice and point of view the work culture there was just completely different. And I thought it was good to be in that kind of office where politics play a little bit more of a role and people were not as nice there as they were at the Associated Press. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, It was just a really interesting work culture to learn from. And I made my way fine. There were people who were very, very kind and very supportive and many who I still talk to today, actually. But the culture overall was definitely very different and was an eye into how a New York magazine um, or a magazine in New York rather uh, functions from the inside. That's kind of also where I learned we're like, ah, I should have just tried to get into Yale or Wesley and it would have been a lot more helpful (laughs) if I wanted to be in this world. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that as well. Even though, yeah, I wasn't a journalism major and I felt even more shut out because I felt like if I, I hadn't been on this kind of ladder of internships and stuff like that and I wasn't a journalism major, so... I did feel a bit shut out. I didn't do many much in the way of internships, but but I find it very interesting you internet AP um, because yeah, it is so breaking news oriented and stuff like that, and very different from what you do now. Did you study magazine journalism or did you study newspaper journalism? And you know, when did you start to really get into food stuff? Yeah, I studied magazine journalism. I actually also stayed on for an extra nine months to do the grad program. So I I got the master's in Medill as well. And there I did business journalism. Yeah, my experience is pretty varied. I breaking news is probably still my first love. I really love breaking news. And even at Eater, where I last work and here at the Chronicle to break news in the food world is still a pretty big deal. I mean, I, I think in journalism, the easiest way to get an audience is to break news. And so it's still super important. And and that kind of foundation, I think I feel really strongly about. And even though I'm more of in a features department now, I look for people who are interested in breaking news and understand what it means to break news and have that urgency around it. Because I do think that is super core to what 
journalism is. Whether it's breaking news, like a breaking news item or new things, or even if it's more essay-ish or cultural stuff, it's kind of the term thought leadership is kind of overused, but kind of to, to break a concept, I guess. So I did the AP, I did New York Magazine. And then after graduation, I went to the Atlantic Wire, which is now defunct, but it was a news blog as part of the Atlantic Magazine. Gabriel Snyder, who had been the editor huh. at the time, was, had come from Gawker. So it was very, very, very news bloggy. It was basically my job was to live on Twitter. <laughs> and I didn't last there for very <laughs> long. <laughs> I kind of do in doing it was like, I want to be reporting. I don't want to be sitting on Twitter and figuring out what people are reacting to right now. And this was like, what 10 years ago or something so it was still i i don't know it was good to find that out early so at this atlantic wire internship which i did learn a lot from and i did learn a lot from gabriel and and, on how the internet works and how to find an audience through social media and kind of nailing into what discourse was and how to respond and the way that the beats and pace of online media but then after that i i it was part personal part career-wise, is I knew I didn't want to work there anymore. I did the Atlantic Fellowship, which is kind of this year-long thing for early career journalists. I was getting paid $10 an hour for $40 a week, but then I pretty much upfront was told that I was going to be working 50 hours a week, but I only get paid for the 40 because that's just what was happening. I think they've changed it now. I think they do pay a little more now. Um, (laughs) But I decided I knew I, I think I wanted to be reporting again, and I wanted to be doing original stories through the AP, which again was a really great experience, and the Atlantic Wire, I think I realized I didn't necessarily want to be doing national news or political news either. I didn't want my day-to-day to be going to press conferences. I didn't want that to be a significant part of my life. The heart of why I wanted to do journalism at all was to talk to people and also break news stories and write about stories that just hadn't been written about before and have the sense of discovery and curiosity and I think it's a lot more challenging with national news. I, I don't think it's impossible, but um, with political and national news, a lot of the day-to-day is going to press conferences and trying to find the edges of what you're covering to get new stories out of it. And local news, local people aren't doing a lot of local news. And when you're in a local place, there's always stories. There's always stories that people are talking about but haven't been written about. And no one else is covering them. It's not to say it's not as competitive. I wasn't doing a lot of stories that were super competitive but by the time I started. It's more of there's a lot more opportunity to feel like you're bringing something extremely fresh into the world and to be talking directly to sources who haven't talked to other journalists yet and aren't necessarily, I don't know, they're not necessarily jaded by the the media process. So my boyfriend at the time was living in Chicago and I was in New York and it was kind of like, okay what's going to happen. And I also didn't want to do my job anymore. So I started looking for jobs in both New York and Chicago, happened to get one in Chicago first for DNA info, which is a now defunct neighborhood news site. And it was for a reporter job. So initially it was a permalance job where I was just going to do GA reporting, like general assignment, crime reporting. And so I showed up. There are times where I woke up at five in the morning to drive to the morgue to find out who died the night before, essentially. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I didn't do that for a very long time. Pretty quickly, there was a gap in a neighborhood, Lakeview. They needed a neighborhood news reporter there. And so I basically started pitching stories for this neighborhood to kind of like test on whether or not I would be a good fit to be covering that neighborhood. And they ended up giving me the job. So I shortly after got the full-time job there being a local 
news reporter for this site that the whole business model was hyper-local. So every reporter was dedicated to a geographic area versus a topic beat. So I really, really got to know Lakeview, which still has a super special place in my heart. It's a super interesting neighborhood with Wrigleyville and a lot of these sports bars. Wrigleyville is, uh, for people who don't know, is the baseball stadium is in Wrigleyville. Wrigley Field, this like iconic, historic baseball field, one of the most beautiful ones in the country, in my opinion. But then there's also Boys Town. So one of the most well-known LGBTQ communities within the country and then there's also Southport, which is this area that was mostly families and, you know, well-to-do professionals that was a little more bougie. So it, it would just had a lot of different, it was a very diverse community in that way. It was still in a very expensive place, but there were still little pockets that were more affordable and just a lot of cultural clashes that made it a super interesting place to cover. And I was just covering everything, crime, business, restaurants, politics, development. Wrigley Field has been developed, but there was a long time where it wasn't and the owners of Wrigley Field needed to get permission from the city to make changes on it because it was this landmark status. And so when they were going through that effort, I was covering it. That was really exciting. It was one of the city's biggest icons going through intense modernization. And it was really dramatic. You have a lot of NIMBYs, you know, very classic NIMBYs, but then also people who just lived there who had really real concerns and distrust of the Ricketts family, which owned Wrigley Field. I was all over the place, but the big part was that I was just literally walking around and talking to people and going to community board meetings. And it was really fun. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know you had done that. D- DNA Info, I mean, w- what a name for a site. I know, terrible name. <laughs> it, it was that era. Like, I, I spent a little bit of time freelancing for, like, Patch.com, and people were trying to reinvent local coverage. I mean, in a lot of ventures, didn't work out. So that's, you know, no huge surprise. Uh, how, how long did you stay there for, and uh, what happens after that? Yeah, I stayed there for... I can't remember, maybe four years or something. I I did it in Chicago for a little bit. I knew I had wanted to get back to New York and a position opened up at DNA Info New York. It was only in two cities, New York and Chicago. And my boyfriend at the time had also been interested in going to New York. And so it seemed like, okay, let's just try this. At the time, I felt like I prematurely left New York because I had really liked it. And I love, love, love my experience in Chicago. But at the time I was like, okay, I was planning to go to New York. This is the opportunity that's opening up. Let's go. And it was an easy transition because it was internal, that switch. It was interesting. Doing local news in Chicago versus doing local news in New York is super, super different. New York is way more competitive. You can throw a stone and hit a journalist, basically. They're just, they're all over the place. <laughs> and the and the community is different. I covered Williamsburg, Greenpoint, and Bushwick in uh, New York, which is a huge geographic area. And was a really compelling place. There was all these gentrification issues and cultural issues and things that happened in Williamsburg sometimes made national news because it was just this illustration of hipster culture and the tensions between having that hipster culture and people who'd lived there for a long time who didn't really care and were just getting pushed out because prices were going up. So it was really interesting, but I think that because the people who lived there were much more used to media in Chicago the neighborhood I covered they had some of the people I talked to had never talked to journalists before because they're just the neighborhood was just not covered that closely and I became 
you know, really friendly with a lot of people who live there because I was just showing up at every single meeting and getting to know them as people. And so they ended, I think they ended up trusting me because of that. Whereas in New York, the people living there who are just, you know, at community board meetings were much more dismissive towards media and much more distressful. It was really hard to, to watch myself in there. And it's just in general, so, so much bigger, those neighborhoods. So doing local news was a little more different. I think I lost a little bit of the connection that I felt to Lakeview. I didn't dislike the job. It's still very interesting and it was good to learn about the neighborhoods and I still feel very nostalgic even going, even after I left that job and was going through those neighborhoods, I can just point out different locations like, oh, there's this story and this person did this and, or this development, you know, I covered the start when they were trying to get it through and now it's completely finished and look at, this is the vision that they had. But so at some point I, I knew it was ready to do something else, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. And Eater actually reached out to me and asked me if I was interested. Doing, they were looking for a new reporter and they asked me if I was interested. And I talked to them and I, and then I got the job. And so it was kind of as simple as that. I had always really loved food, never really considered going into food reporting or food journalism. Always very much a general news reporter with local news reporting too, even though it's, it's a very fulfilling thing to do. It's definitely a grind and it is, it was doing a lot of shorter stories and I was kind of thinking, well, what's, what's next? And it just seemed like something super new and be interesting. And I kind of have gone about my career that way since is not what is the big vision of my life, but what is going to be interesting now? And like, what am I going to be happy doing in the next few months or the next year or even the next week? Like, how do I want to spend my time? So that's with that approach, I ended up taking the eater job. Cool. And yeah, I mean, this is like mostly what I know about you. I've known you as Ryan's friend, essentially. But I just remember my friends would speak like reverentially about you working at Eater or being an editor at Eater, which <laughs> I mean, is something that was much like so I have so many friends who live in New York and like. It's so funny, like, I mean, it's just so much more relevant to them than, you know, anything I or so many people I know write about. <laughs> like, it's just uh, like they really cared about this. So uh, how, how long were you there for? And uh, I guess give me any highlights from that time. Yeah, I was there for close to five years and I loved it. I mean, Eater was really great. I, I can't say enough about it. I think that the transition from local news to food news is not as much of a stretch as people might think. I think in the media market overall, there are, as far as local news, having local food news is irreplaceable. You can have national food news, but if you're living in San Francisco, you're living in New York, you really just want to read about the places that are close to you or the places you can actually go to. And so I do think it's one of the few genres of news that is difficult to replace on a national level if you think about even news in oh well especially news in new york where you have a lot of people who are reading the new york times which at this point is an international paper and not really a local paper anymore some of the stuff can be replaced you know you might not want to know the everyday goings-on of a community board meeting but when the new york times swoops in like four weeks later with their bigger take that might be the only thing you read with food news that's not necessarily the case where you do kind of want to know the smaller places you want to know about the up-and-coming 
coffee shop that's trying something new and you want to know about this smaller restaurant around the corner that is serving a different kind of tamale um, or whatever it might be. And so it was really great. My take on Eater, I think, is maybe a little different from a lot of other food media outlets. Like we never did recipes. We were very much a local news site with a lens of food, in my opinion. And food obviously is such a huge part of the culture in New York and going out and eating. And so that that was really that was really cool. Reader was great. I started under this editor named Greg Morbido, who just knew everything about the modern New York restaurant dining scene. It was really incredible to learn from for as far as voice and far as players in the scene. And Eater started out as a blog. And so there was this idea of they were going to be the blog that didn't just read press releases and didn't just regurgitate them, but sometimes wrote stories that the restaurants weren't ready to talk about. A, more, a very much a audience diner focused thing where we weren't just going to write about the things that we were asked to do and from the restaurants, which is very much a thing. There are a lot of people employed in the restaurant PR scene who do a great job of getting the word out there about their restaurants, but trying to break out of that cycle a little bit. And so I started off as a reporter. It was a range of things. You know, there's a lot of openings and closings. That's still the core of what I do now was breaking news of big closures or breaking the news of big openings. And sometimes it would be very small items. Sometimes it would be bigger items. And mixing that with features where the opening feature might be talking a little bit more with the chef about his vision for the restaurant. But then it might also be this other big restaurateur is being sued for not paying its staff correctly. And I would have to read through a lawsuit and pick out the parts of that. And the whole idea behind Eater 2 for all the various city sites is that if you want to know about what's going on in the food world in your city, you must read it. And so every morning we would have AM Intel, which is this roundup of other food stories from around the city. And so even if you were obsessed with food, you were not necessarily reading 10 different publications, we would be reading it. And so we would recap it and just give you the the need to know for all those things. So in that sense, it was very bloggy. When I started, they were trying to move more, do more and more original reporting. And so that was kind of what I was bringing to the table where I had more of a hard news background and had a lot of experience trying to break news and finding alternate ways to cover restaurants. So going to community board meetings, understanding the way that restaurants apply for liquor licenses and announce that they're opening, knowing the places where they post that information or knowing how to look up the landlord of a property. So maybe the landlord could confirm whether a restaurant is closing or not. Working at DNA Info, we were very much the underdog. So you kind of had to find ways to get information that were outside of traditional means. And so that was kind of what I was trying to bring the table at least. So yeah, I mean, Eater changed probably like a zillion times (laughs) while I was there and partly because of me and partly not. After a while, so Greg left and then I got a new editor, Melissa McCart, who's now at Heated. And she was really great. A big thing I learned at Eater too is just the difference in people's management style. I think that they don't necessarily teach you about this in school, but who your editor is, who your manager is, and how the culture of a newsroom system works can have a huge impact on the work. And her style was very different. And she had not worked at Eater before and had less of a super newsy background. So I kind of took over. I, at that point, I was the news editor. I had been promoted. So was 
overseeing far more of the news and training her a little bit on some of the way the eater style for things. My relationship with Melissa ended up being far more collaborative than mine with Greg. I mean, partly because Greg just knew so much more than me and didn't know what he wanted for what the news was going to be on the site. And so, and I respected him for that. And, and that was kind of our relationship. Whereas with Melissa, it was far more collaborative. And I ended up doing a little bit more of that traditional news editor title of deciding what we we're going to cover what we weren't seeing something happens okay we need to chase it we don't need to chase it or here's the angle that we need to do for it but then with before the year was up she for personal reasons decided to take a different job and at that point the company offered me the editor position at Eater New York and it was scary and I but I took it <laughs> and that was the first time I had started managing people and was so grateful for my experience with both Greg and Melissa and to see their different styles and kind of try and build my own once I started there. Yeah. And then I became editor and then was doing that for a couple of years until I came here. So, yeah, I'm curious as in transitioning to an editor, I mean, editors are supposed to have a vision or whatever. It's a whole different ballgame from being a reporter. I mean, what was your vision and did you try to push things in certain directions or how did you come at it? Yeah, I think having had covered it for a while, I just slowly started to develop more opinions about how stories should be and what I thought should happen. And I think came into my own in that way. For me, writing about food in a city is helping to define how the city ticks and helping define how people eat and kind of guiding people, um, guiding people and then also reflecting the way that people are eating right now and the most important, but also the most delicious and the most interesting ways that people are eating. And, and I think restaurants are such a critical part of the way a city ticks. That was very much my take to it is, is how do things tick and how does this reflect the way that we're eating right now and, and, and how things will go in the future and how are people making choices and how, how deep can we go on that? And so I wanted to see the city and its restaurants as a universe with different players and characters who are moving and pushing and, and what that means for people and, and how that impacts the city as a whole. So for a smaller example is for a restaurant opening story pretty classic, basic tenant of food coverage is, okay, this restaurant open. And there are different ways to go about it, different angles. You know, there might be one specific dish you want to highlight, or maybe the chef is really well known and you want to profile him. Or maybe it's just a street that doesn't have that many other restaurants of its sorts. The thing I always ask reporters is, okay, yes, it's a restaurant opening. Why is it interesting? What does it say about how we're eating right now? What does it say about the neighborhood that it's in? What does it say about the street that it's on? How do you think people are going to react to it? What else is going on in this universe that plays into this? Because no restaurant is opening in a silo. They're a part of the city and, and, and how are they interacting with it? So, you know, maybe it's like over here in the Mission District, well known nationally for having incredible Mexican food. It's the home of the Mission Burrito, obviously. So this, I mean, this is a made up example. If a Mexican tasting menu restaurant were to open here, we might ask like, well, does this neighborhood need a Mexican tasting menu restaurant? What does it say about the way this neighbor's gentrified? But also maybe it is someone who, is it someone who grew up in the neighborhood? What does it say about how the Mexican food scene is changing in the city? And kind of placemaking is what I call it, is I really want everyone to placemake where these places aren't existing in a silo. What, where does it fit into our universe? right now and let's make sure to define that so 
your lead and your headline when you're thinking about it? How can you talk to people who maybe even aren't that interested in food or restaurants? How do you tell them that this is an important thing to know right now? Just as someone who lives in the city or cares about the city, how do you present it within the larger world that they already know to tell them that it's important? Yeah, that's pretty cool to like be able to think about all those things. Uh, out of curiosity, just because it is a like whole genre unto itself, do you have any thoughts about restaurant reviews? And like, do you have to deal with that now in your position at the Chronicle? And how do you fit in that kind of? Because that's obviously you're expressing an opinion. And I mean, food. I guess it's a little bit less of hard lines drawn. But you know how. How do food reviews fit into the overall ecosystem of the food journalism world? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I do. Uh, Soleil Ho is our critic here. She's really fantastic. And then at Eater, I had the luck to have two incredible critics, Ryan Sutton and Robert Sitsima. Ryan did more kind of fine dining restaurants. He leaned more towards things that were a little trendier. That was more of his beat of the now. And then Robert's beat was more of outer boroughs and... The unsung heroes was kind of his beat. There's just so much going in New York. So they both kind of went that way. I think restaurant reviews, there's a lot of purposes for them. I think that there's so much competition for deciding where to eat right now. At the end of the day, there's Yelp, there's Instagram influencers, there's the infatuation. There's so many different ways that people are finding that out. And so the value of the critic for me, it's not just here are the things to order at this particular restaurant, but it's again, that same mentality of why does this place matter? What's this person's story? Why should you care about this? What does this say about how we're eating right now and how does it fit into our larger universe for opening stories? It's definitely a little bit more subtle. I want people to be thinking about that, but it just may be small tweaks. The reporters are not necessarily giving their opinion on the food. They're not saying this tastes this way or this tastes that way. It's definitely more of a traditional reported story. But for the critics, they are really doing a deep dive into these restaurants and their food and what it tastes like and how the way a certain thing tastes or is made speaks to the dining scene as a whole or food as a whole or how we see ourselves in a certain way or techniques, but also what it says about a certain cuisine or what it just says about the chef. And in addition to that, also just saying, is this delicious or is this not delicious? It's kind of different things. And so my goal is to present something to people who are really passionate about food of like, yes, this is an expert. This is not just someone who is on the side, a really passionate Yelper. This is someone who thinks about food, thinks about the people behind it and has eaten tons and tons of food and can really, from a point of view of someone whose job it is to do this, is tell you whether this place is a good value or not. It's a range of things. For Soleil, she covers a wide range of restaurants. She kind of does both. She's really great about visiting a ton of places outside of San Francisco and like places that are not traditionally considered hotspots for food. And trying those places and in some cases writing about restaurants that maybe haven't been written about before and reviewing those places. But also really important as well is reviewing fine dining restaurants. I think that on a lot of social media, there's this narrative of, oh, well, who cares about these places anyway? We shouldn't even be writing about these finer dining places. And I disagree with that. I think that these places are charging a lot of money and are in some cases at the top of their craft and have dedicated their careers to doing something really incredible. And for a lot of people, yes, these kind of restaurants are out of reach, but 
there's also a lot of people who are really interested in the craft of food and maybe do want to save up for a meal like this. And so from the critic's perspective, it's, well, is this going to be worth it or not? And kind of presenting that. Right now, because of the pandemic, even once the pandemic started at Eater as well, if a place wasn't that good, we just weren't going to review it. Like right now is does not seem like a fair time to be issuing reviews are even a little bit critical. I think everyone's really struggling and trying to f- figure things out. Generally for restaurant reviews, the rules are, you know, you, they're kind of made up rules, but I, I stand by them as you, you give a new restaurant at least a few months or maybe six weeks. People have different ranges and the critic has to go at least three times and pay on their own dime before they write the review. With the idea being, you know, you got to let a restaurant get on its feet a little bit and maybe one time wasn't on point, but the next time it was and it was just a bad night just because restaurants are these living organisms with, you know, any one thing can be different because and that will impact the way your meal goes. So right now, I mean, the big thing is the pandemic. So there's not, it feels like there's too many of those different factors to even do some criticism. There are people who think that there shouldn't be negative reviews at all. I also disagree with that. I think if that we're going to take restaurants seriously and the craft of making food seriously, then at some point you're going to have to call it out when someplace could be stronger. Right. Yeah. So when, when did you start this job at the San Francisco Chronicle? I started last July. Last July. Yeah. So that was in the pandemic. It was already in the pandemic. Yeah. I moved during the pandemic. I actually got approached for this job before the pandemic started and like, remember having this dinner with a really close friend of mine, seeing this email, like, oh my God, I've, I'm not the kind of New Yorker who's been like, ah, maybe I'll move to California one day. Cause I know there are a lot of New York people like that. And I was very much a New York snob of, I don't really need to be anywhere else. Yeah. I don't know. Then the pandemic hit. And so things got delayed and I had a really incredible team at Eater New York just really, really loved them. We were really clicking. And then in the beginning of the pandemic was this weird time where our industry was getting completely upended and we had no idea what's happening. And a lot of people, besides the industry itself, a lot of people didn't know how they're going to get their food anymore. Like you couldn't go to the grocery store because there'd be a long line, but like none of the delivery systems were working because they weren't built for it. And so we did a lot of service coverage to try and tell people how to get their food. So like one of the biggest stories of last year for us readership wise was in the beginning of the pandemic when restaurant wholesalers pivoted to selling to consumers. Wholesalers had essentially lost all of their business overnight. And meanwhile, like Whole Foods Delivery, Instacart, all these different grocery delivery platforms, they were completely breaking down. It was impossible to get a slot to get a delivery because everyone was trying to do it. And so we collected all of the wholesalers that were pivoting to consumers and saying, well, these are alternate ways to be getting your food. And I mean, business for them, you know, it didn't completely replace restaurant business for them, but it certainly helped. And our readers really loved that. It was a lot of that. And then, so then I was just like, but I was basically knee deep in pandemic coverage for a while. And then things started calming down a little bit in the Chronicle, reached back out and was like, let's have this conversation again. Sure. And now that you've moved there, I mean, what, what how is... I mean, obviously, it's a different location, but how is this one different from what you were doing at Eater? It's super different. So Eater is is a very unique place, and it's also free. 
And so the business model and the kind of stories you write when your site is free versus not free are a little bit different. And I was trying to get in the biggest number of people to read the stories. And what is the biggest need I can fit right now was kind of the point of view. But my audience is much, much smaller now. The Chronicle has a really hard paywall. I think if you live within the Bay Area, you can maybe read two or three stories for free before hitting the paywall. If you live outside the Bay Area, you just can't read it, the Chronicle at all, uh, without having a subscription, which is different from a lot of different places. And one reason they brought me on is because I have mostly digital experience. Like I have not worked at a place with print since, I don't know. I, oh, I, I entered at the Miami Heralds for a little bit. Also great experience. But I think that was the last time I worked at a paper for like four months in Miami. <laughs> and so they brought me on in part because I because I have this digital experience and their business model now is trying to get more digital subscriptions. But it's even more important now to break news than it was before. Essentially, if we're not either the first to get it or have a different angle or have a source that someone else doesn't have, there's no reason for someone to go to us if a free site has the same information. So you really have to make the hard sell on why your work has more value than anyone else's. Sure. Okay. I guess there's one more question just to close out the biography section and the next two parts go much, much quicker. Uh, I know you did do the show Ugly Delicious uh, with David Chang. And I was just curious if you had anything to say about that experience, if that was a big moment for you or what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it was really exciting. I had never been asked to do something like that before at that level. So it was, it was really cool. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, they, I had written this story a couple years before about racist restaurant reviews. I mean, it seems so common now, but at the time, not that many people were calling out reviews in the same way, I think. And so I had written a piece about someone had reviewed a, this Chinese restaurant in Brooklyn and they just said some things that really threw me off and I, it just felt where they talked about Chinese food and people in a way where it felt very dismissive and leaning into stereotypes of Chinese people being dirty and the food being gross. And this Chinese restaurant in Williamsburg had been, the chef was white. And so the way, the way the review was framed was that this was cleaner and better Anyway, I was I was like, you need to be more careful about that. This review is kind of racist. And so I wrote that piece. And Dave later told me that that piece had stood out to him as a point of view. And so he was interested in having me on this episode. It was a roundtable, just people shooting the shit for their episode about Chinese food. Yeah, it was it was crazy. <laughs> I never been in a setup like that where there's so many cameras and like sound equipment is very expensive. So the poor sound sound guy, like being like, please be careful with this mic on you. I'm like, okay, I will. I promise. <laughs> it was a little intimidating because I had not really talked to Dave before that round table. And then I showed up and you know, like Alan Yang is there and I'm like, Oh, I know this guy's work. It's like Alan and Dave. And I'm the only woman at this table <laughs> of people. I think Ed and Joe were also out there I had spoken with before, but it was kind of nuts. And I just went into, I guess, doing what I'm doing now where I kind of disassociate from myself a little bit and then just ramble. <laughs> <laughs> ah, 
anyway uh yeah it was really cool it was really cool i was really surprised too when they asked if we could fly down to knoxville which i hadn't been to in years because my parents have since moved to houston and anyway in knoxville i was way more nervous there was not as much knoxville footage i think for the show i was so nervous that entire time so i don't know if it was as good but i'm kind of grateful that there wasn't more from that (laughs) from the knoxville shoot (laughs) yeah it was crazy i got dave to come to my hometown and talk about chinese food it was wild it's just cool to be part of that to, to have said things and gone through that experience i don't know if it had any like lasting impact on anything or for people or me or my career but it was cool it was I, I think that in my little circle a lot of my audience is people who are super obsessed with restaurants it's definitely the core audience of eater and less so of the chronicle since it's a more general interest place but it was interesting to be part of that in part because i think a lot of people who i don't usually reach were reached through that and i'm hopeful that a little snippet of the way i think about restaurant reviews and food and race and equity and the little things of how we present our narratives came through to a much wider audience through the show. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And yeah, David Chang is a very big deal. Um, As we all know now, I mean, I've been a fan of, uh, I'm a big fan of Top Chef. So like, I, I know him from that and when he started showing up there, but now he has his own shows and everything. And, And I mean, it's pretty amazing. Well, I could keep asking you more questions, but we should probably move on to the next segment of the interview. The next section is about stories. I usually like to ask about two different types of stories. The first one is a story that, quote unquote, got away, something you wanted to do, but for some reason it didn't come off, whether, you know, couldn't prove it, couldn't get your editor to go for it, couldn't get the right person to talk to you whatever it was, um, it can be something you still pine for doing someday. Um, but does anything come to mind? There are a few different things, but some of them are sensitive enough that maybe I don't want to, don't want to say anything about them. Sure. I can, I can talk a little about this story that I have been thinking about. I I am going to try and pitch, but I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do it yet. Cause I am not, I think I'm out of practice. Um, (laughs) So I have this newsletter. I call it the Digest, which is like a play on my last name. It's D-A-I-G-E-S-T. Uh. And it started off as just a list of things I was reading that I thought were fun or just wanted to share with my friends and uh, like years ago. And it's totally transformed. And now I don't really do it as much anymore. But I now use it as the one place I can write without needing to think of an audience and just think about what I want to write. And I don't know. I think as writers sometimes you crave the purity of space um because <laughs> there's sure. so many other elements to journalism especially as an editor i'm always thinking about audience i'm always thinking about who's this for who's this going to play for what is this angle are people going to understand this are people gonna understand that and this is the one place where i write where i don't think about that and i just think about what it is that i want to say and it's harder and harder to carve out those spaces for myself where I can just kind of put stuff on the page. Until very recently, I haven't really published anything that I've written in there just because a lot of it is really personal or, yeah, I don't know. I just don't see a world where there is an audience or I'm not ready or something. But I am going to try and get one of them 
out there. When I was traveling a few years back in the Southwest, I had this incredible tour guide for this ATV tour in White Pocket, which is this place outside of Kanab, Utah, a very, very tiny town that is probably best known for being equidistant from a ton of really beautiful things. Like it's not that far from the Grand Canyon. It's not that far from the Arches, all these really famous destinations in the American Southwest. And yeah, I had this incredible tour guide and he told us that before he was working for this place, he had his own company, like a climbing company, a canyoneering, I think, where he would go down into canyons. And shortly before he started there, he had fallen 90 feet into the Grand Canyon. Like he was doing canyoneering. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he'd done it a million times, the same thing he'd done before, so many times before. And he just made one small mistake and he, he fell and he survived. He got to the bottom. He didn't break a single bone. Oh, wow. He, yeah. But once he got to the bottom, where he, wherever he landed in this canyon, he had to climb his way out, climb his way out of the canyon. Like after the 90 feet, I think he said he hiked like an hour out of the canyon and then had to drive like an hour to the hospital from there after taking this drastic fall. And they, you know, did the x-rays, they examined him and said he was fine. Wow. Yeah. And, and just kind of this crazy story of this is a guy who had like dedicated his life to the outdoors and dedicated his life to adventure and he just had a huge impact on me of, of what that was like afterward. And, and, and during this tour, he had taken us on this, he took it as a white pocket tour, but then afterward was like, Hey, are you guys down to try and explore this area a little bit more? I haven't really explored it. And we said, yes. And we ended up at this small arch and I am not a climber. I ran like a 15 minute mile or something in high school. I just am not very <laughs> athletic and I hate falling. So cli- anyway, cli- it was just not my, my, many of my friends have tried to get me into climbing and have failed, uh, <laughs> but was like, do you want to climb this arch? And I don't know, just something about him. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. So we did it. And because it's an arch, the higher you climb, the wind goes through the whole of the arch really quickly. And it gets louder as you go. Cause it's like a whistle. The arch acts as this whistle for the earth, which is kind of nuts. Sure. The higher you climb toward the top, the louder it gets. So it almost felt like I was in a movie where someone's climbing like on the edge of a cliff and the sound of the wind it just gets louder and louder in your ear. Like it, it sounded like there was just a mic against my ear. They were just someone was just turning up the volume on the wind with every step. So it felt very dramatic. But I got to the top. I was terrified. It was actually not that steep. I'm just a total security cat. Afterward, he said this thing where he, he drew a circle in the sand and he said, the thing about being a tour guide is you always have to eye for someone's comfort circle and everyone has a comfort circle and you can't stretch someone so super far out. And he like pokes, he puts a dot in the sand, like super far out because they're, they're never going to get there. They're just not going to do it. But you really have to eye how far out of their comfort circle you can go. And he like puts a little dot right outside, right outside of it. And then once you do it, your circle gets bigger and then eventually you can get to this other more ambitious thing. And I was like, yeah, he did it. He nailed it. He like really got the in-between of my comfort circle and where I wanted to be. And just the idea of him having this comfort circle and his comfort circle must have gotten so big because he's climbed to the Grand Canyon, like gone through all these ambitious canyons and gone through there. And eventually his comfort circle got so big that he, 
he made a mistake and kind of thinking about like, well, what does he do now? How does he approach his comfort circle now after basically having a light, literally actually having a near death experience. So I'm going to try and talk to him and, and see, see where he's at and see how, whether that impacted him more or not. Wow. Yeah. That's quite the story. It's cool that it's both this guy's personal story, but also, you know, through telling this story, thinking about this bigger issue of comfort circle and uh, how we approach our lives. That's pretty cool. So is the digest, is that something that exists that people can see or is it just a thing between you and your friends? Yes. It's, it's, I'm still on tiny letter. I don't have a trendy sub stack yet, but it's, yeah, it's a tiny letter.com slash the digest. And I don't put the archives up live anywhere. It's either you get the email or you don't. It's very small. You know, it's only like a couple hundred people are on it. I'm not really sure where to publish any of this because when you write for yourself, you're not pitching to someone necessarily. So it's kind of weird. Like, is it a personal essay? Is it about him? I don't know yet. I don't really know. Like my editor mind is kind of on now and I'm like, I don't know who's going to want this. <laughs> Seems <laughs> just like a little all over the place. <laughs> Sounds cool, though. Sounds like it'll be a good story. However you figure out how to do it. Cool. So, yeah, then the next one is a story that you're proud of. So if you can pick a story from whenever in your career, doesn't matter if it was a long time ago or recent. And just tell us what the story was how you got the idea and just basically start to finish how how you did it yeah i said this question i wasn't sure i wasn't sure what to do i think the the story that people probably know me most for is i was on the team that broke the news about mario batali's allegations of sexual misconduct right and that's probably the biggest thing i've done kind of the splashiest but i think that the thing that speaks to my point of view the most is this big guide I did on Chinese food in New York. And it was a huge package. There are multiple different stories in it. I think I spoke earlier about placemaking and defining how a city eats and what that means. And I think this is a great example of it. It ran a, a while back, a, a few years ago. But this is more well-known now. I mean, you were in China, so you probably know a little bit more about this than I do, about the WeChat economy and how people right. interact on WeChat. So it's for people who don't know, it's this app that mostly Chinese people are on. So in New York, there's been a huge influx of younger Chinese people. And there were all these restaurants that, that were becoming super popular, but you know, it may open in the East Village and someone would walk by and would be a huge line or like clearly tons of people waiting, completely packed and would be a restaurant that none of us had heard of. And that's pretty unusual as far as like being at Eater. We were all pretty in the know for stuff. And like for if there for there to be a new restaurant that was that hopping for us to not have even heard of in any media was pretty unusual. And it was a Chinese restaurant. So we're like, okay, well, why is this happening? A, that's one aspect of it. You know, clearly this is drawing people and is capturing some sort of audience in New York and a New York, certain kind of New York diner. Who is this diner and, and what's going on? On the other side, my mom had been visiting. She was about to visit New York and she was like, WeChat says this is the best restaurant in New York. Do you know this restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> and... I hadn't he either hadn't heard of it or hadn't realized it was so popular and was kind of surprised. It's like, oh, people are getting their information from WeChat. Like, 
WeChat is kind of defining the Chinese scene right now in New York, or as possible. I had this theory of of there being this whole world of new or interesting or trendy or just things happening within the Chinese food scene in New York that I was just not privy at all to because I, I don't read Chinese. Like I'm, I'm like basically illiterate and I'm not really on WeChat. So I had this idea to write about it and have this big package. And I think we're doing something for a broader audience and you're doing a bigger digital package or magazine package in general. You're trying to think about having stories for different people and what's going to pop out and what's not. So we presented it as a guide on Chinese food but the bigger theory was that there was a Chinese food renaissance happening in New York because of all these newcomers who were innovating and bringing trends from China that were happening right now and globalization being so fast and needing to respond to the flavors that people missed from home, but in a modern way. Because of the immigration patterns to the United States from China, a lot of kind of the older school Chinese restaurants in New York the criticism from newcomers is that, well, these restaurants are serving food that isn't as popular anymore in China or isn't as modern or like the setting isn't as nice as I want it to be or all these various reasons. And so very captured in time of an older time in China for food. So with these all these newcomers, a lot of young students, they had formed their own restaurants and these newer restaurants were catering to them. And so they're very different and there are more flavors and more cuisines and more styles and also they're like much more chic. You know, like they were places where young people want to hang out on a night in New York, just like any non-Chinese person might want to hang out in a place in New York. So for the broad, broad audience, you know, we just, for the package, we just had a guide to Chinese restaurants. There was just a list of the best Chinese restaurants ranging from more traditional to more new school. Um, but there are also a bunch of stories in it. So I hired a couple of freelancers who were bilingual and knew how to report in Chinese and they found stories. They found stories about WeChat. So we had this great story from this freelancer, Shen Lu, who wrote about the WeChat influencer economy was a totally different influencer economy from Instagram or the stuff that our English language audience would understand. And so she reported it. She found out how they promote restaurants and their relationship to restaurants and how they get paid and how restaurants relate to them and what a huge impact they can have on a business. At that point, I found out that the restaurant we had first heard of in the East Village that was super popular, they had recently done a promotion with an influencer on WeChat, which is why their restaurant was so busy and had brought in such an audience was entirely through WeChat. And these restaurateurs were saying, we don't give a shit about Yelp. We don't give a shit about like Time Out or Eater or the New York Times, like none of these English language platforms matter at all. Like if you get a review in the New York Times, you know, as a restaurant in New York, your life will change. But it, this is just completely not their audience. But they're still New Yorkers, right? These are still New Yorkers who are eating and kind of driving which places succeed and which places don't. I'm, I'm really proud of that package as a whole because I think it had something for different people like the food nerds who really wanted to dive into stuff and see how the city and the dining scene is shaped by forces that they might not even know. But also people who are like, I just want to know where it is I should go eat right now and just having lists of that. And then also people who are interested in the city itself and not necessarily food. My coworker, Stephanie Tudor, had done a story about arcading directly to the people around them. Little strips where it's mostly targeting Chinese people. One could argue that New York has nine Chinatowns from a food perspective, and kind of looking at all these different Chinese enclaves within Brooklyn and Queens and streets where 
in Brooklyn that you wouldn't have considered a traditional Chinatown, but there's a bank with Chinese lettering on it. There's a Popeye's with Chinese lettering on it. Like all these different businesses on this small strip that. Right. Yeah. Chinatowns in New York are great. Uh, the last time I was there, you know, I took the bus from the Manhattan Chinatown out to the, is it Jamaica Chinatown? Cause I was meeting a friend there who's going to give me a ride out to Connecticut and like going into that mall out there, I was just like, I might as well be in mainland China. Like this mall like <laughs> feels like being in a mall in like a third tier city in China, riding up and down the escalators. And yeah, the food is just so great. And But it is very interesting to see like the rise of mainland influence. And like WeChat is definitely part of that where these places identity were much more linked to say Cantonese or uh, Fujianese or Hakka or you know and now like this kind of you know monolithic communist China you know that where everybody speaks Mandarin and you know everybody uses WeChat and all it's been interesting to see that like influence growing abroad and I mean I like that in terms of food just because like I miss Chinese food so much and I miss all the like regionalism in it that you couldn't always find in the US but now I think you increasingly can so yeah anyway I miss Chinese food a lot and that sounds like <laughs> a great package I'll have to look at it if I'm going back to New York yeah. because yeah I would kill for some good Chinese food it might already be a little out of date, but you can you can still find stuff. Is there any Chinese food in Brazil? How's the how's the scene there? It's not great. I know the people at the Chinese embassy, and honestly, they'll all be like, "The Chinese cook at the Chinese embassy is the best Chinese food in Brasilia." And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, well that that only helps me out twice a year when I go to your parties um, at the yeah, embassy." Yeah. And otherwise, I mean, there are a few here that I guess I would say serve banquet style Chinese food. Like if I want, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, what is the, what are the names even like Shreju Nu or like, uh, if I want mm. like a huge fish in a pot of oil, or if I want like, I'm sure they have mapo tofu and stuff like that. But it's, it's very much like in the US where it's kind of like strange approximations sometimes. Some things they'll do very well and some things it's like, I guess they're doing the best they can with the ingredients available. <laughs> so uh, not great. There is one place in the north side of town where it's this old Chinese grandmother who makes just dumplings. It's a hole in the wall right next to the university. And that's probably the best thing in town. But her menu is like Ooh. dumplings, fried dumplings, and like one noodle dish. And <laughs> but, and maybe you can get I kind of love that, though. She like yeah. knows what she's good at and that's it. That's what you're getting. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it's interesting in Brazil, just the, the Japanese influence is so prevalent here. And that's most of the immigration they got from Asia. So like I can get mm. excellent Japanese food. Like I'm a vegetarian now, but I mean, there's a one of the best sushi places I've ever eaten in, is in Brasilia. So I, I guess I can't complain. It's just, yeah, it, Japanese food doesn't hold quite the special place in my heart that Chinese food does. So, um, yeah. Well, you spent so long there that it's, it's, yeah, it's hard to replace. Yeah. Someday I'll go back. Someday I'll move back. I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> usually a visit to New York scratches that itch pretty well, um, or yeah. San Francisco for that matter. It's been forever since I've been to San Francisco. Cool. 
Okay. So those are two good examples of stories. So yeah, next up is the lightning round. So it's faster paced questions, but feel free to answer, you know, as short or as long as you'd like. Do you feel ready? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Cool. So the first question is, what is a must-read publication related to your job that you read almost every day to keep up with what's going on in the areas you cover? Gosh, there's there's so much. I try and read a lot. Honestly, I still keep up with Eater. I, I still feel like they do a good job of rounding up the things I need to know, both from a national level and a local level. Like uh, my old boss, Amanda Clute, who's editor in chief, she does a weekly newsletter where she kind of rounds up stuff that's going on in the world, in the food world. And I still try and read that every week. Oh, you know, I, you know what I really love too is food newsletters are really big right now. So there's a few I read. I, my inbox is already kind of a disaster. So I try not to subscribe to too many. <laughs> but the family meal is a newsletter that goes through very restaurant industry background type stuff that also does a good job of rounding up stuff that's going on nationally across various cities for the restaurant industry. And then I really love, I guess this is less of a newsletter I read to know what's going on, but more of just because I enjoy it. Alicia Kennedy is a writer who has a newsletter called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. And it's also really good. I think that she is a vegan and she writes a lot about issues surrounding that and progressive radical issues. And I would definitely say she is more radical than I am as far as her point of view on food and the world. And I, I, I don't always agree with her, but I really enjoy reading her work because I think she's super smart. And I, I like to see how she's framing the world and um, I try to learn from it. So those are the big ones, I think. Cool. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch purely for fun? Who Weekly I listen to. It's like entertainment news and celebrity news. Do you know Who Weekly? No, no. WHO Weekly. Yeah, it's a podcast. It's incredible. Uh, it's about, so the concept, it's a play on the Us Weekly. It's Who Weekly. So Bobby and Lindsay, <laughs> the hosts, talk about, their tagline is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. So it's the idea of, you know, there are celebrities who are in the press a lot and they're just kind of out there, but you might see their name and be like, who is that? And that's a who. Um, so an example is like Angelina Jolie's a them, Brad Pitt's a them, Rita Ora, a who. She's always in the tabloid. She's always <laughs> in the news. <laughs> but it's kind of every time you see it's like, wait, what does she do again? Who is she? But anyway, there it's a pop culture podcast, essentially. And I just think they're very funny and have a interesting point of view and are doing things in a smart way. And the pocket's been growing a lot. I subscribe to the Patreon. They put out two extra episodes a week, I think, and I pretty much listen to all of them. They're they're great. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And then what is the best journalistic article piece? Again, it can be in whatever medium that you've consumed recently. I've been really recommending Time to Say Goodbye, another podcast. It's a podcast about, I don't know, Shorthand, I, I, I tell people it's about Asian shit in the United States. <laughs> I, <I'm, laughs> anyway, they talk a lot about race and equity and politics and, and what's going on in the news. I appreciate that they're all on Twitter, but they aren't necessarily talking in Twitter discourse, if that makes sense. Like it's, they go deeper and it's more thoughtful and not necessarily just 
I don't know, Twitter discourse can be a lot sometimes and really flattening. And it's, it's a nice format for them to talk about those issues and talk about issues that come up in a way that is more in depth. And I really appreciate it because I do think there's not a ton of really great Asian American identity writing out there, like contemporary Asian American identity writing, mainstream stuff. A lot of it's so boring and corny and not fully aware. And I, I think this is not that. It's a lot smarter. Cool. What, what's the name of it one more time? Time to Say Goodbye. Okay, cool. And then is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job? I'm right now Survivor, the reality show Survivor. (laughs) (laughs) I can't understate how much watching Survivor has changed my pandemic life. It just, I I don't know. I I watched it when I was a kid and then I stopped. And I'm I'm one of those people who's like, what Survivor? I can't believe that show's still on. But now I'm me and my fiance have been watching it and going back and watching the I use the the ringer guide. It's like a guide to binge watch Survivor and they offer different ways to binge watch Survivor. And one of them is the Thanos snap. And the Thanos snap is the writer goes through and tells you all the seasons you need to watch to really understand the game. And I've, <laughs> I've been going through that. I'm not I'm not done yet. But a friend of mine described it as Game of Thrones. But if it were a reality show, it's so good. I will be down to talk the social game, the physical game, blind sides. I subscribed to the, the subreddit for Survivor, but then I had to get off of it because there were too many spoilers for seasons I hadn't seen Uh-oh. yet. Yeah, I'm just finding ways to talk about it now because <laughs> it's I like it, it truly went from night after night of looking at the TV and being like, oh, what do I watch? I guess I'll watch this. And now that I have Survivor, I, I will geek out about the game with anybody. That's great. And yeah, plenty to dig into. They have what, 40, 50 seasons or something ridiculous? Yeah, there are 40 seasons. And then how do you manage your work-life balance? And in your case in particular, since, you know, you work so much with food, I imagine things can get a little bit like, can you just sit down and eat a shitty sandwich? Particularly in your case, I'm curious, just since food is so ubiquitous. It was funny, before I left New York, I was working remotely for the Chronicle while there. And it was kind of nice for the way I was eating because I could order whatever I wanted. I could repeat my favorites. Whereas like before, like if I'm going out to dinner with people, I'm pretty adamant about being the one to make the choice on where we go. Because <laughs> there's <laughs> always places I need to be checking out. There's always, you know, my dining resume is still has plenty of holes in it. And so I'm always trying to find the new place to go or places that I need to check out to see whether they're good enough to write about. Or maybe there's an interesting story. Or maybe I want to recommend that my critic write about it. Or maybe I want to suggest it for some sort of list that we have. It's a very tiny violin. I mostly, you know, end up getting to try new things and try really great food. So it's not too bad. Most of the food I taste is not. The thing, I think there's this image of people working in food, restaurant news. That's very glamorous. It is definitely not glamorous. It's expensive. And I definitely spend way more at restaurants than I used to. I have to pay for it. You know, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm not taking free meals, but I don't necessarily get all the meals expensed either. <laughs> so it's anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think most of the restaurants I go to, the way I say it is I always go out to eat wanting to fall in love. Always. I always come in with an open heart, ready to fall in love with the place. 
And the thing is, when you're out there being that vulnerable, a lot of times you're not going to fall in love. You can't fall in love with everything. So I've been dining out less here because things have just been closed. But I would say in New York, the worst thing about dining in New York is that you can spend a shit ton of money on very mediocre food. That's most of it. You very rarely have a bad meal. And that part is good. But then you do have a lot of just okay meals that you spend a lot of money on. That's a lot of it. Is Twitter important to you? Oh, man. (laughs) I would love the luxury to not be on Twitter. I would love it. But on one hand, I think I'm addicted to it, probably. But I also feel like I can't be off of it. I don't tweet as much as I used to. My tweets auto-delete now. I put in something where my old tweets just delete. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, you know, sometimes you get high and you do a tweet and maybe you shouldn't have tweeted it. And I don't know. Twitter's so strange. The way you phrased it made me feel like, you know, this is like a family member or something. Like, is this important to you? Or like a philosophy <laughs> or something. And I'm like, oh, it's a philosophy? No. <laughs> Uh, but I do think it's important for my job. I think you see this a lot now with things like Clubhouse, right? Like these different mediums where they're trying to figure out a better way to converse with each other than Twitter because it's a bad platform, I think. And then the next one is if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Oh, Nora Ephron, for sure. I love her stuff. She's just so funny and insightful and like has a really wonderful way of describing the culture that I think is fun I don't know if this is so lame but I'm you know I'm working on like three different novels at any given time I haven't really been working on them recently because of I don't know like I said I've struggled to even do small things let alone write a book but she's great I mean she's also so singular I don't know that we're in a world where someone can have the career that she had like I love that she used to work at New York tabloids I think people really hate on New York tabloids for a lot of good reasons oh but I think they're so fun I like kind of miss reading the post every day I guess I could still read it every day but I needed to read it in the post every day for work when I was working at Eater and sometimes it just seems like they're having a lot of fun you know I don't take things too seriously and and there's this like attitude behind it that I think Nora used to work at one. And I think there's some of that edge in her, her work. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? And it can be fiction or nonfiction, but just related to journalists in some way, even tangentially. Has everyone said Succession? By any chance? No, no. <laughs> I love Succession. It's so good. When people recommended it, I first watched it. I was in a bad place and just like couldn't watch it. But you know the concept, yeah? Yeah, I really like Succession. In the last season, I watched it and then would listen to two different podcasts about it. So I was pretty <laughs> obsessed, yeah. Oh, man. It's so fucking good. <laughs> yeah, good it really is. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't watch it initially because of that pilot where they're like buying out the smaller company and DNA Info ended up shutting down. I I had left already at this point when they shut down, but the workers unionized. They refused to recognize the union and then 
they ended up going through the labor board and they forced DNA Info to recognize it. But then Joe Ricketts decided to just shut the whole operation down instead of having a union operation. <laughs> yeah, it was bonkers. I think the first episode like maybe hit a little too close to home the first time I watched it. I was like, I can't deal with this. <laughs> but I since have pushed through and I think it's just, it's a good show. And yeah, in the second season, there's that hilarious thing. I think it's the second season where they go in and shut down some Gawker-esque type company, which I can't remember, but had some ridiculous yeah. name. Yeah, it's slipping my mind too. I th- heard they're finally filming the third season, which, or sorry, not the third season, the next season, which thank God. Yeah, yeah, no, I've missed that show. The last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I would want to have no job at all, honestly. I no longer <laughs> I no longer dream of laboring. <laughs> I would like to just be rich, have all my basic needs met, and then I would probably just write and do whatever I wanted. Well, I would probably still be a writer. I'd probably still be writing, so I guess that's good. I mean, you know, the day-to-day of writing, there's no purity in it. You're in a market. You're in a capitalist market needing to do certain things, but... Yeah, independently wealthy is a good answer. I would love to be independently wealthy and not have to worry about money ever. (laughs) That's That's my dream job. (laughs) (laughs) To not work. That's that's the true goals. Cool. So yeah, that's all of the questions. So I guess I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Serena Dai, a senior editor for Features at the San Francisco Chronicle. I'll post links to some of Serena's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps the podcast get more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash ForeignPod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, April 25th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.